You are listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. This talk was given at 2007 Frankfurt Avenue. For more information, visit us at circleofhope.net. To introduce Megan Jackson to you, you may know her. I've known her since uh, 2012, right? So seven years of uh, friendship. So she's dear to me in many ways. She also leads her church in a lot of ways and has over... uh, the course of her time in Circle of Hope. Right now, she is on our church planting core team, which is trying to imagine new places that God might um, send us. So, real creative, imaginative group. She's also a librarian in the uh, in the Free Library of Philadelphia. So she has a, she has a lot to offer us, and she's working with a challenging subject tonight. And I can already tell you, since I already heard it, she um, she navigates it quite adeptly. So here's Megan. Thank you. Um, I just want to note that in the last meeting, Johnny, when he was doing his introduction, said, and you love cats, right? Um, And there's so many librarian stereotypes in the world. What is the stereotype? I've never heard of it. Do you like Like, have you seen the music man? Like, you know, Marion, like glasses, hair pulled back in a bun. She's like mousy and that's how you know she became a librarian and she's a spinster. Um, that's like, that's how people think of librarians. Like they're, they're white women, which they are. Um, I am so regretful to tell you um, who were like, I like my cat. That was my answer in the meeting. I mean, I feel this might not be okay to say in a Sunday meeting. I feel about cats the way I feel about babies. Like, I don't, I don't love all babies in the world. Like, I don't see a baby across, like, at a restaurant and be like, oh, there's a baby. But when my friends have babies and I get to know that baby, like, I'm into it. And that's how I feel about cats. Um, anyway. Um, so we have been talking about celebration tonight. That is not what I'm going to talk about, but it's it's fitting. Um, it's fitting that we talked about celebration. I think because Thanksgiving is coming up, and even though Thanksgiving can be amazing, the holidays can be so fun. They can also be really hard. Um, and I think for most of us, there's always some like sorrow intermingled with the joy. So that's what I'm giving you tonight. Um, so. We've been talking about things that Jesus never said this season. Um, all of these weird kinds of like phrases and tropes that have gotten twisted into Christianity in really weird ways. Um, and I get to talk about whether everything happens for a reason. Um, originally, I was supposed to talk about YOLO, which <laughs> would have been a really fun speech to give. Um, and probably a little bit easier. I think that everything happens for a reason is particularly insidious. Um, it's really complicated to unpack. So I'm going to give it my my best shot, and I hope that you know you talk back to me after this. All I can do is just bring my own experience. <clears throat> everything happens for a reason. Sometimes this phrase gets used when, like in a positive way, um, when something amazing has happened, when we're so thankful God's worked something out in our favor. My mom likes to say, it's such a God thing. Um, <laughs> when, when a good thing like happens um, that we like maybe couldn't have like 
made happen. Um, like we didn't know the thing was gonna get resolved, but like God worked it out in our favor. Lucky us. Um, <laughs> but I think that this phrase often gets used more as empty solace for people who are grieving or suffering. Um, I think most of us who have experienced some kind of loss in our lives have heard people say to us like, but everything happens for a reason. Um, and it never feels good. I literally found a BuzzFeed article called, here's what not to say to someone who has experienced loss. And there's a reason for everything was number one on the list. Uh, BuzzFeed's rationale was no matter what you believe, no reason is good enough to take our loved ones away, which I think is true. Um, in my research, I stumbled on a TED Talk by Dr. Kate Bowler um, as I was preparing for the speech. She's an associate professor of the history of Christianity in North America at Duke Divinity School. Um, and she published a book in 2013 about the history of the prosperity gospel in America. Um, it's called Blessed, if anyone wants to look it up. Um, it was pretty successful, and she's a pretty successful woman. She works at Duke, which is like, if you want to teach theology, you want to teach at Duke. Um, she published, oh, so yeah, she published her book about prosperity gospel. Um, in 2015, she was diagnosed with stage four stomach cancer. In her TED Talk, um, Dr. Bowler talks about her fascination with the prosperity gospel, which, if you're unfamiliar, says God wants us to prosper um, and rewards faith with happiness, wealth, and health. Lucky us. Um, Dr. Bowler doesn't believe in the prosperity gospel and approaches it from an outsider perspective. Um, but after her diagnosis, she realized that she, a lot of that had like wormed its way inside of her and it worms its way inside all of us, um, particularly in this country. Um, she had, you know, her like dream job. Also, if you are an academic, um, I, she, she really got lucky. This was the first job she applied to. And she just like, <laughs> she says in her TED talk, I know, she says in her TED talk, like, I got my first job that I ever applied to in academia, the land of a thousand crushed dreams. Um, <laughs> And she had a baby son after years of infertility, and she had married her high school sweetheart, and everything had gone so well for her. Um, and she was like, I realized that um, I thought I had earned all that, that that was the reward for me living a good life, devoting my life to something I thought was important. Um, her diagnosis really forced her to confront the fact that prosperity gospel is the American dream um, and that it just doesn't, it doesn't hold up. So in 2018, she published another book called Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lies I've Loved. Um, and her TED Talk has the same title if you want to look it up. She says, I can't reconcile the way that the world is jolted by events that are wonderful and terrible, the gorgeous and the tragic, except that I'm beginning to believe that these opposites do not cancel each other out. The horror of cancer has made everything seem like it is painted in bright colors. I think the same thoughts over and over again. Life is so beautiful and life is so hard. So at the end of her TED talk, she says that in difficulty, we find love and hope, not despite difficulty, but in difficulty. Um, 
In other words, the sensible, logical, systematic ways, answers that we use to rationalize the world when things are fine, just don't hold up when we're grieving. Um, but love does. And I think if we're careful not to confuse our experience of God with the systems that humans devise to understand God, God can also withstand the turmoil of our suffering. And I think God draws close to us in our suffering. So because I don't think God wants us to suffer or devises our suffering in some cosmic way, I really thought I'd be able to turn to the Bible or some theologians for evidence that everything doesn't happen for a reason and that God doesn't necessarily have an omnipotent, omniscient plan for our lives, um, which is not a great way to approach the Bible, and I don't recommend it. Um, you know, you're not supposed to like do any kind of research that way, right? You don't go in saying, this is what I think, and I'm going to find evidence to support my belief. Um, yeah, all I found was disagreement. Um, theologians disagree about this all across the board. Even theologians within like the same streams of Christianity disagree about this. The Bible also seems to disagree with itself about this, which was just maddening. <laughs> As I was preparing to give this talk, um, some people do think that pain and suffering are necessary in our lives, engineered by God to make us better versions of ourselves. Some people think there's no master plan, just things that happen and a God who witnesses everything. Uh, the Bible says things like, and we know that all things work together for the good of them that love God to them who are called according to his purpose. Um, I had to memorize this verse when I was a kid. It's a head trip <laughs> um, when you memorize that one verse outside its context. Um, the Bible also says things like, the race is not to the swift or the battle to the strong, nor does food come to the wise or wealth to the brilliant or favor to the learned, but time and chance happen to them all very anti-prosperity gospel. Um, and also, like, what do you do when the Bible tells you both of these things are true simultaneously? Um, so I'm going to be honest. Oh, I'm sorry. Robert, were you trying to take a picture? <laughs> Go for it. I'm gonna... <laughs> I don't have an answer for this either. Um, we're not getting out of this with an answer, so bear with me. Um, I don't know that there is an answer. And for people who are convinced that they have the answer, that answer often falls apart when the going gets tough, um, particularly when we're confronted with things that make us suffer um, with our own pain and with other people's pain. So my mom is obsessed with C.S. Lewis. Um, my childhood home is full of C.S. Lewis books, books he wrote, books about books that he wrote, books about him as a person. She even has this, it's like, it's, it's huge, and it's just a book of his quotations, which is absurd because she has all the books that the quotations are from. Um, my mom is a C.S. Lewis person, so I grew up with all of that all the time. And when I was a teenager, I read The Problem of Pain, um, which C.S. Lewis published in 1940, um, and I hated it. I, I mean, I loved a lot of C.S. Lewis, like, not just Narnia. You know, I was like, I was reading Mere Christianity. I was reading The Great Divorce. I was reading The Screwtape Letters and loving all of it. And then I stumbled across Problem of Pain and put down C.S. Lewis for a while. Um, yeah, it wasn't until I forced Bryant to watch this movie with me called Shadowlands. 
um, that I really started to figure out why the problem of pain had bothered me so much. Um, so Shadowlands is a 1993 movie with Anthony Hopkins as C.S. Lewis, which is like already like unsold. Um, <laughs> and it's about primarily his relationship with his wife um, that he had in his later years, Joy Davidman, who's played by Deborah Winger, who, by the way, got an Oscar nomination for Best Actress for this role. So it's worth seeing. Um, if you have a library card, you can watch it on Hoopla. <laughs> I didn't plug that at the first meeting. I should have. Um, <laughs> so I'm going to show a couple of clips. Um, they're speaking in British accents. It's echoey. It's YouTube. So I'm apologize if you have a hard time hearing it. But basically, the first clip is um, Anthony Hopkins, S.C.S. Lewis, giving the central premise for the problem of pain, um, his argument in that book that I hated so much. And we're going to watch it. Yesterday, I received a letter and referred to an event that took place almost a year ago, September 4th, 1951. My correspondent has been forgotten. I don't understand. That was the night a number one bus drove into a column of young Royal Marine cadets in China and killed 24 of them. You remember? And the letter asks some simple but fundamental questions. Where was God on that December night? Why didn't he stop? Isn't God supposed to be good? Isn't he supposed to love it? Does God want us to suffer? What is the answer to that question is here? I'm not sure they want particularly most to be happy. I think he wants us to be able to love and be happy. He wants us to grow up. I suggest to you that this is because God loves us and he makes us the gift of suffering. God's metaphor. Rounds of death to us. You see, they are like blocks of stone on which the sculptor art holds the death. Loads of us are different. It's so much. I would make us better. is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. It's pithy. <laughs> um, and a direct quote from The Problem of Pain, and um, it's the argument he bases the whole book around. This idea that God gives us pain because it's necessary, you know, as, as statues, God is chipping away all of our humanity and trying to get a better version of ourselves, um, which I don't love. <laughs> And if you do, that's fine, but I'm going to talk about it. Um, so this movie, Shadowlands, is centered around his relationship with Joy Davidman. This is them here. Um, <coughs> I think you can't really tell um, in this picture because she is pretty sick at this point, but she was like 20 years younger than him. They had a really scandalous relationship, and I'm going to give you some of the deeds. Um, <laughs> so Joy Davidman... Um, Nate Gresham, was born in 1915 to a middle-class Jewish family in the Bronx who were pretty well-educated, and she was a child prodigy and a documented genius. She had a career as a teacher, writer, and just general brilliant thinker. 
She was all over the like literary and political scene in New York in the 30s and 40s. After the Great Depression, she was really disillusioned with capitalism and she became a communist, which was like trendy <laughs> at the time. Um, and she met her husband um, when she joined the Communist Party. They got married, they had two sons. Um, and then in 1940, she had a religious experience and converted to Christianity from atheism. She wasn't a practicing Jew. Um, I'm sorry, in the late 40s, not in 1940. She would have been a bit young. Um, so she started corresponding with C.S. Lewis, um, and they became like pen pals. Um, he, I mean, their brilliant minds just kind of sparked against each other, and they had both converted to Christianity from atheism, and so they felt a lot of the same things. Um, and his books really helped grow her faith. Um, so when her marriage collapsed, she moved with her sons to London um, because London was more likely to publish her work than the US at that point. Um, her sons went to boarding schools and she became friends with C.S. Lewis. In 1956, her visa was about to expire. So C.S. Lewis secretly married her in a civil ceremony. They did not tell anyone, including her children. Um, they just lived their lives, secretly married, <laughs> um, but they hadn't received the sacrament of marriage in the Anglican church, so they didn't live as a married couple. <coughs> in 1957, um, Joy found out she had a life-threatening cancer, and she was hospitalized, and no one thought she would live. And while she was in the hospital, they got married for real by a priest, um, and she got better, and they had three years together while she was in remission from her cancer. And then in 1960, she finally passed away. C.S. Lewis was a lifelong <coughs> bachelor, <laughs> um, never intended to marry, lived with his brother. Um, they were both academics, and he ended up having this kind of weird whirlwind romance with this very unconventional American woman. So I'm going to show you another clip from the end of Shadowlands. Um, it's after... Joy's death, it's after the funeral. C.S. Lewis has to go find her son Douglas in the attic, and he's sitting, and it's hard to tell on the clip, but he's staring at the wardrobe that was in their attic, that was their childhood wardrobe that um, C.S. Lewis based the wardrobe on in the Narnia series. So we're going to watch that. Jack, Ted, don't read the business. Maybe you feel like the mess, maybe you did, but there's nothing. Talk to him. I don't know what to say. Just talk to him. Uh, 
not allowed to finish that verse. After that, you go. So here's what this movie taught me about this question. Whether or not there's a reason for everything that happens, God is not a puppet master pulling the strings of the universe for God's own ends. Before he met Joy Davidman, C.S. Lewis, an intellectual largely unaffected by intimate relationships, saw God as a teacher lecturing and punishing us for our own good. After Joy's death, Lewis doesn't tell Douglas that the pain he is feeling is God rousing him into a more perfect self. Instead, he sits down, and he listens, and he weeps. To me, this is an image of Jesus, and I think this is how we experience God meeting us in our suffering. People often make meaning of pain they've experienced in their lives by noting all the good that came out of that time. Sometimes our experience of suffering allows us to sympathize and help somebody else, and that is beautiful. Sometimes people see the changes they were forced to make um, have helped them discover a new path or facilitated some spiritual or emotional growth, um, for which we can be really grateful. But mostly, I think, when we look back at past suffering that was meaningful to us, it's often because we felt the presence of God more nearly and more dearly in our lives than we can just, you know, every day. The day before Johnny texted me that the topic for my speech was not YOLO, <laughs> but was everything happens for a reason. Um, the day before, like 12 hours before, I'd gotten a call from my mom that my youngest brother was suicidal. Um, he was two hours away at college, um, and his girlfriend called my mom panicked that he would hurt himself because he had sounded really bad on the phone. So my brother is 20 years old. He's suffered from severe depression most of his teens um, and into his early 20s, or he's 20. Um, he is one of the kindest, most compassionate people I know. Um, he's got a dry sense of humor, kind of awkward way of moving in the world. Um, 
He doesn't love widely, but he loves deeply. He once told my mom when he was a kid that he related to Spock from Star Trek. <laughs> um, <laughs> he related the, to that kind of like, you know, inability to like make emotional connections with everybody or like take those big risks. Um, he just doesn't emote outward like that. But he loves deeply and he gives selflessly. Um, he has this really amazing ability to share what he thinks about the world with my Tucker Carlson loving grandparents. <laughs> and he's the only one they can't shut down. It's amazing because he shares what he thinks with such kindness and love that they just like, they have nothing to say to him. Um, it's really amazing to watch. Um, and my brother, who is so beautiful, has a body and a brain that sometimes make him think that the world would be better off without him in it. I find it impossible to believe that God, who loves my brother more completely than I ever could, would cause my brother's depression for his own good. <laughs> um, nor can I fathom a loving God who would allow my brother to suffer from a distance for the good of the universe to the you know, end of some master plan. In all of its disagreement about the role of suffering, the Bible and all my other teachers, historical faith figures, um, my own experiences, all of you teach me, um, everyone agrees on one thing, that God is with us when we suffer and suffers with us. Next week is the first week of Advent, um, the season in which we celebrate Christmas you didn't realize that was coming. Um, and it's fitting because the ultimate way that God gets down in our suffering with us is through the incarnation, God becoming flesh. In the Christian tradition, we believe that God chooses out of love to be born into a man's body in first century Palestine in a Jewish community oppressed by Roman rule. Jesus sits down and listens and weeps with people constantly in the Gospels. He suffers in all the ways that we suffer. Um, people around him die. He's surrounded by poverty, deep poverty and deep need everywhere he goes. And despite people desperately calling on him to establish a political kingdom, he instead endures torture and death. Like so many before him and so many after him, he experiences systematic injustice, oppression, and violence. And rather than alleviating that suffering as much as he may have wanted to, he gives us himself instead. That is the only answer that I can offer you. That God loves us and strangely and mysteriously suffers with us. That God draws close to us. That's the assurance we get, not a rationale for suffering, but a living God in the midst of pain and grief. I'm going to pray, and then we can do talk back. God, thank you for being with us right now and when things are dark. Pray that you would continue to draw near to us and make your presence known to us. Allow us to sit with our suffering and with the suffering of the people around us in your image, the way that you showed us how. Amen.
Anything people want to say? I had someone tell me that once, like recently, someone at my job. And my response was, uh, well, yeah, it's going to have to. Like, kind of like, yeah, it happened for a reason because it's going to have to happen for a reason, you know, like something's going to have to come about. Not that it like, makes anything better. Um, it's just like, I don't know, I guess my question more rather is like, that's the only response I can really think of. Like, do you have an answer for like a response to something like that? Or is it more like, uh, more than uh, That's so hard. And this, this is what made writing this so hard. <laughs> it's like, how do you tell someone who believes that, you know, there is like a plan um, that God's hand is in their suffering that it's maybe not? Um, I don't know. I kind of let people like keep their comfort, <laughs> um, but I think that obviously the best way to respond to somebody who is suffering is just to like be there with them. I think that if you if you are the one who's grieving and someone's like everything happens for a reason, just be like no. <laughs> um, I don't know. You're grieving. Give them the middle finger. Like what? What are they gonna do to you? I don't have a great answer for that one. I think it's really hard. Um, and I, as I was writing this, I was going around in circles, like, how do we talk about this? Like, what, what do we actually think about this? Um, I don't know. Somebody else may have an idea. Um, I, I don't really have an answer. But just something that came to mind is that I think that there's a difference between saying that um, God caused something bad to happen and saying that God can redeem something that happened. For our good, um, something that is suffering, I, I think, is can be used, and I think there, that's like a slight uh, nuance, you know. But um, so maybe that's like saying, like, well, you know, I don't really, I don't know. Maybe that's a way to unpack that phrase with somebody who holds on to that phrase, because I have people in my own life that say that to themselves, you know, and so you can't like rip out there support system, but... Um, let's do Brian, Bree, and then Kate. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, I would say something responsive to what you're saying, Sorry, I know what that was. What was the passage we were talking about uh, with John... Uh, John 9. John 9, uh, where Jesus is talking to a blind man, and he said... In NIV, it's, <coughs> I don't remember that. It's like, it's, Jesus comes across a blind man, and people yeah. are like, who caused his blindness? Was yeah. it the sins of his parents or his own sin? And Jesus says, neither. It's so that the glory of God may be revealed, and then heals him. And we talked about that passage a lot when I was writing this, and I was like, I don't know what to do with this. <laughs> I'm going to leave it alone. <laughs> yeah, and I found other interpretations that say basically like it's not a so we we put a, uh, like a we make it a, a, a phrase that this happened so this could happen but that's not like what the humor's reading so this happened full stop let the glory of god be shown in this moment like evil's bad god is here to me they're not correlated and that's something i have to hold intention in my life because like my family has gone through a lot of suffering my dad's blind my mom had brain cancer in high school, 
um, and has suffered with the ramifications of that her whole life. And so I get a lot of people like talking about John Nine and my dad and being like, let me pray so that God's glory can be shown. Yeah. My dad is still blind. And like for him, there's a lot of meaning that's been found in God redeeming his suffering and that and the hope or the, the, the knowledge that God has a plan for his suffering. And that is not the answer that helps me every most days. And so I go home and like, I'm not gonna take that away from him. Um, but I don't know. But we also find other things that we talk about. Uh, yeah. It's about like theological stuff. We're talking about God and Yeah, I don't remember what we we talked about it much, but we talked about something really profound last time at home, and I really enjoyed it. And um, this is great. So we were there. I don't remember. We can talk about it. Um, so I really appreciate your your perspective and sharing. I don't know how to stay for both services if I get the kids to my um, so I think about these things a lot. I work with people that suffer. I think I work with people that suffer because I worked, I had family members around me all the time suffering and newly suffering. Um, very similar brother short. And I think that I'm constantly going back to like, I have a hard time connecting with God because my tradition did also say, very Calvinistic, this is your cross to bear, whatever the thing is. Um, and I was at the 30-something retreat yesterday, and that was like coming up a lot for me in contemplative prayer, and like a lot of like frustration and anger, which is why I often avoid meditation because it comes up, and I'm already frustrated and angry all day at work, hearing the many struggles of the kids that I work with, and the decade of people I worked with before that struggle with stuff. So I don't want to go into meditation and just be angry at God. Um, but I think it was helpful because I like brought it up at the retreat and people were like, oh yeah, that sounds interesting. And I was like, aren't you? <laughs> 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 um, so it was really helpful to like, I know that God can handle my anger. I know that um, that God's in all that, but it's, it's helpful for sure. Your end point to remember that like, God suffered with us in it, so we can cry together instead of get angry. Yeah, I've worked with a lot of kids who have suffered too, like six years with teenagers in foster care, and I heard horrible things. <laughs> um, but I think, yeah, I it's not a satisfying answer in some ways that like there's no there's just no reason beyond like human evil potentially that these kids are suffering and have suffered, but. Um, that God loves them so deeply um, and is like crying with me, crying with them. <laughs> um, yeah, it's a weird thing. I also grew up Calvinist, so I get it. Um, Kate? Yeah. Um, this is, I think, I, I, I wrestled a lot with this thing in the aftermath of the same of cheating, something that I had probably for. Um, I'll never forget the, for a few months afterwards, there was a sign on a, on a road near the school. Someone had just hastily spray-painted Y mm -hmm. and just 
nailed it to a telephone pole in front of their house. Um, and the the only way I got out of that, because like it wasn't it wasn't just that like my own personal life had fallen apart in life, awful in ways. Because like I, I read the problem of pain, and then I read a brief observed. Very different. Very different. Um, grief observed, way more helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, the grief is, observed is C.S. Lewis's journals that he published um, mm-hmm. after Joy's death, um, anonymously. Yeah. So you have him academically approaching pain, and then him essentially just railing at God. <laughs> um, and there's a lot of there's a lot of like there's a lot of debate around this question. There's a lot of like the theodicy of the problem of evil in the world, all these things, and like, I don't necessarily agree or disagree with so many of those things, and the only way I found myself able to actually, like, move forward into a meaningful way was just this, like, understanding that, like, actually, the, the theological or philosophical debate around why these things happen is ultimately, at the end of the day, just, like, academic wankery. Like, it doesn't actually do anything. It doesn't move the needle in any sort of meaningful way. It's just, and like, because we don't know, and we're not going to know. And like, somehow I found peace in that. And like, I, I don't know. Like, like, but yeah, I, I still struggle with it, right? Like, it doesn't just go away. You were at the and, 5 o'clock meeting, right? I was. Um, at the 5 o'clock meeting, Debbie brought up um, Job and said that she had really struggled with the book of Job. Um, Job is this book of the Bible that's really crazy. God and the devil have a bet about who can, whether Job's going to stay faithful to God or break. And so God just heaps troubles on Job. He kills everyone he loves. He destroys all of his property. It's brutal. Um, And probably not a literal story, depending on who you ask. But um, Debbie had said that that story was hard for her, but she... um, she was really grateful that there was a story of somebody wrestling with God in the Bible. And then I brought up, like, yes, like Jacob. And then, like, Jesus in Gethsemane. And I think, like, we have a God who will get down in the dirt and wrestle with us. Um, yeah, I mean, none of those people give a very satisfying answer. Even Jesus, like, it's like, well, yeah. your will be done, I guess. <laughs> Job gets two chapters of a non-answer. Yep. That is just God being sarcastic. About, like, you don't know what... Like, you don't know how the world is, how it is, so just maybe shut up. So <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I think God's presence, as much as an answer would be nice, I think God's presence is definitely powerful. <laughs> I don't know, anybody else? Yeah, Johnny. I've talked to people that um, really need God to be um, meticulously sovereign for them to find comfort, and usually it's rooted in their own circumstance. Um, and I've talked to people who can't worship a god that, you know, um, killed a kid. Mm-hmm. And so I found it helpful to let people cope with the pain that they're in, the inexplicable pain that they've experienced, the way they're going to. And like, yeah, and you should too until it doesn't work anymore. And then you have permission to try something else. The theology being personal, um, for me, kind of universally works, but if you take what personally worked for you, abstract it, and then apply it to like the universe, 
that's like, I think that's when you get into problems, when you're telling people how they need to think about the world, with, with the uh, lack of awareness that actually, that your, that your understanding of God comes from your experience. You know, why did C.S. Lewis write The Problem of Pain? Probably in response to World War One, and then something else happened to him, and then he wrote another book, right? So theology changes based on our uh, personal experience, and even like Job, right? There's something contextual happening there, too. Yeah. Uh, I think, um, I think I've been learning recently. I think I, when, I, when I was growing up, it was just like, you learn from the suffering, and then you like apply it. Like you just go ahead and skip to the good part. Um, but I feel like it, things weren't fulfilled when they were doing that. It felt cheap to try to go directly to the good stuff. Um, just even with my own, like I felt like my body was falling apart when I turned like 28. I was just like, God will have the glory in this. I'm like, no, this sucks. And um, this is like the new reality now, and this is what I have to work with. But through that, I found like a deeper depth to things in general. Deeper depth. Um, I found this like this this beauty in it, but it still sucks. But I feel like the one that I've been dealing with, I've been working with, is holding things. I'm holding lots of things. I'm holding a lot of complexity, and that's what I'm finding life is all about. It's not about this joy, this all of its joy or all of its terror. It's like everything together is one thing and it's beautiful and it is terrible. And I like to think that we have a complex God and life is complex in itself, which is comforting because in my mind, dualistic thinking has not done me any favors and I kind of want to move beyond that. And I like the fact that we are holding many things and therefore we can hold many things with people. We can be really happy with someone and be really like be really angry with them. And it's like, it's, it's, all, it's this and that. Totally. I think if we give up systematic answers, we're just better able to hold like, yeah. the, the pain and the suffering in one hand and the joy yeah. um, and our faith in the other simultaneously. And then I think that'll be good. Um, recently, this exact phrase <coughs> came up twice and both with um, people who are incarcerated uh, for no reason. One was a young friend who was in for like four years, got out, um, he didn't do it, he was acquitted, and um, totally just said, well, you know, everything happens for a reason, so I guess I'll find out what it was. And it made me so mad, like, no, there, well, yeah, there's a reason, but it's not um, because God did it to you or something, it's because you're your society failed you, mm -hmm. and I lost track of you, so I feel like I failed you. Um, and there, the you and you endured it, and you thrived. <coughs> and studied the law. You came out like ready to, you know, do do this whole kind of other life that you didn't expect to do, or whatever. And you're, um, I see God's strength in that, not that God is making you suffer for some reason. Um, and the other was just over the weekend met this guy who just got out in May, and he was locked up for 36 years, and he most likely will be fully exonerated in December. And um, same thing. And I was like, no. I was like, man, Ronnie, I was like, aren't you like super pissed off? Like, I'm super pissed off. I want you to sue everybody, you know? And because God, God didn't do it to you. Like, we did too. Um, 
I don't know if it's the right thing to do to like take, like what you said about like I don't want to take people's comfort away or something. But in that, yeah, it just it felt like a. I felt God this felt I felt so misrepresented, like the the God that I know or something like that, and I felt like it was just letting everybody off the hook in some way or something, you know, like no man, it's it's all bad. And Ronnie was in longer, and he's much older, and so he's he's like yeah, holding these the I'm I'm grateful that I'm out, and I feel like I'm supposed to be very like grateful to the parole board and grateful to the state for finally letting me out. He's like, and I'm so mad, you know. So trying to figure out how to hold those and whatever. It's really crazy. Thanks for listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. If you want to talk about it or get connected to a cell, you can find one under our Connect drop-down at circleofhope.net.